la tarde bala negra Bala negra soledad This is Nuestra Palabra Latino writers having their say on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the first live broadcast of Nuestra Palabra and Pilit. It is a brand new year, and this is the beginning of the Renaissance. We have a great show for you today, but we'll put it in context because this is the first year that we will be operating without the ban of Mexican-American studies in effect. It's been completely overturned. It is gone. It's cause for celebration, and this year we got to go back to our roots and take it to the next level. So we got some big announcements about those Nuestra Palabra showcases that you missed so much, and it all ties in to our 20th anniversary coming up in April. Now, this is Tony Diaz, Libre Traficante. We got the whole crew with us right now. They are all in right now. Say hi, guys. Hey, it's J.A. Libre Traficante, Alexis de Texas. And Libro Traficante Malu is out there getting some work I'm done. I'm here, I'm hey, here. Say hi, Marlene. Hey, everybody, what's up? Happy New Year. And we've got a great show lined up for you. Uh, at the top of the show, we got Lorenzo Cano, who is the former associate director for the Center for Mexican American Studies at the University of Houston. I say former because he just retired. And I know for a lot of folks who are driving and tuning in on a regular basis. You know Lorenzo. You probably took a class with him. Maybe you marched with him. <laughs> Maybe you had fajitas with him. If you don't know who it is, you got to tune in because it is a big deal. He is a great guy. And we're going to miss him. You, you missed taking a class with him. You blew it. You should have taken that class. But we're going to have to make sure that we can get him to help all our causes, especially now that he's got a little more free time. So uh, second half, I'm sorry, at the top of the show, Lorenzo Cano will be talking to us what it's like now that he's retired. But then also, speaking of our history and legacy, the second half of the show, she's with me right now in the studio, and she'll be hanging out with us. Yvette Benavides Garcia has the book about her father, Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides Tango Mike Mike and we've talking to her in the second half. Thank you for joining us though. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, by all means and congratulations on the book coming out. Thank you. I am super excited. This is this is so important and I really do folks want folks to stay tuned in because of course you know your, your dad is a legend so folks have heard about him. He actually is one of the few figures who is actually formally in the Texas educational system, but this is the first time that his family takes the narrative, right? Right. This is the first book that has been written by, obviously, his daughter. Um, but all the other books that have been written about him have been from other people who have had to do the research. And so me being the expert, because <laughs> right. I'm his daughter, um, I wanted to write a book. Uh, but it's a children's book, and it's specifically for those kids um, in grades 2 through 7th grade, 2nd grade through 7th. And um, But it's also for the kid at heart. You know, um, adults like to read children's books, so... Um, it's a quick, easy read, but it's, it tells you everything that you need to know about this legend, about this American icon. That's fantastic. So I encourage folks to stay tuned. Of course, we posted a little pre-interview on uh, my Facebook page, and we'll put that on the Nuestra Palabra page as well. But this really is an important moment in our story because that's the message for this here. In this renaissance, we have to take control of the reins. We can't wait for anyone. And I promise you. I promise you, within 10 years, Mexican-American studies will be adopted formally by the Texas Education System. Here, mark my words, 10 years is the long plan. It's going to happen. And here's yet another uh, milestone in that, in that trajectory. Now, at the top of the show, we like to fill you in on different news and events. 
I do want to remind you that today's program will be archived at the University of Houston Digital Archives. You can go down there and visit our friend Lisa to hear past programs. If you want to experience the hard copies of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Have Their Say, you can visit the Houston Public Library Special Hispanic Archives downtown in the beautiful building. And, of course, now we're also posting the shows right afterwards on the Nuestra Palabra website and also at TonyDiaz.net. Now, we've got all kinds of information for you. Please do look for me. I'm on Sundays, Mondays, and Tuesdays. Sundays on Fox 26 Houston, What's Your Point at 7 a.m. Mondays, I'm posting a new blog called the the Cultural Accelerator every Monday at noon at TonyDiaz.net. And Tuesday, your favorite radio program. But that's not all. That is not all. A lot of folks have been asking me about the showcases. Of course, when Nuestra Palabra started in 1998, we would do a monthly showcase and bring nationally published writers with new writers. It was wonderful. But then Arizona banned Mexican Studies. Right. (laughs) Right. And we said, you know what? We have to fight to make sure that that law doesn't spread and to overturn it. And luckily that happened. So this year we're going back to the original program that we started. So awesome. Yes, we're excited. Beginning this month, January 31st at Talento Bilingue de Houston. It is the live showcase. It's Nuestra Palabra again. Latino writers having to say, but we're changing it up just a little bit. We're calling it the Latino Agenda. Because this way, in the past, I think only poets and writers and playwrights thought that they could come and share their work. Now we want community leaders, other professionals, motivational speakers to come as well. And we'll be giving you special updates on that. The other part of it, too, is we need you to come because we're going to have a survey. We want the media to know that, yes, immigration is an important issue, but here are the other top issues of concern to our community. And we want those issues to be paid attention to as well. And we want more of our community to be interviewed locally, statewide, and nationally about these issues. Because there just aren't, there are zero Chicano pundits on national TV. Now, there's some reporters here and there, and some Latino reporters. But the restriction of being a reporter is you can't say, I disagree with this or that. Right? And you have to just kind of, kind of listen and hear it. We are going to start changing that right and left. Now, I do want to save time to talk about all of these issues that have popped up, especially today. Unfortunately, right now, we are reeling from the White House announcement that they're going to remove the TPS, Temporary Protected Status, that has been given to our hermanos y hermanas from El Salvador. And I wanted to add a bit, a bit of a personal story. When I first came from Chicago, I had worked with Central Americans, especially Salvadorans, who were applying for uh, political asylum but weren't being granted it. What they were getting was the temporary protective status. And this is the first time I had heard what our gente went through in El Salvador. I'm not Salvadoran, but we are still human. We're all Latino. And I would hear about the pain and suffering that happened during their civil war. And then it would come to light that the United States destabilized some of these Central American countries. And they toppled rulers elected by the people. Now, you can read the book Harvest of Empire, where Juan uh, Juan Gonzalez breaks that down. And, of course, you could also watch the film Harvest of Empire to see some of that at work. But you need only refer to the experience in Chile. The first 9-11 was in Chile when the United States overthrew the uh, government of Allende. They had a hand in it. So, so again, I go back to the point that, yes, people talk about immigration, but here are these communities who came because they didn't want to stay at home. I want people to remember, who wants, no, who, you don't want to leave your house. Who would want to leave their home? Right. The place they know. Yeah, nobody wants to do that, definitely. They they had to go because of the arrest that was caused by this by the civil war, and of course now two hundred thousand Latino families will be getting letters that say they have to leave the country by September of next year, and many of them have children who are U.S. citizens. Most of their kids grew up in the United States. It seems 
completely unfair and un-American to turn their back on these folks right now, or worse, use them as a political football. So right now, I know our brothers and sisters from the Salvadoran community are dealing with that directly. As the same time as the Dreamers and DACA have to address immigration issues as well. And it's being debated just today. You've got to tune into the news every day because things change. All the time. At a mile a minute. And, of course, today you had the president talking to Republicans and Democrats and saying that he would sign whatever both parties came up with. And he kind of left room, as I interpreted, for Republicans and Democrats to come up with something that works. Of course, recently the debate has been that the president has said that he wants his wall in exchange for the Dreamers. But just so that when you're arguing with your relatives, that just doesn't make sense because the Dreamers are 800,000 of an 11 million population of, of family members who are here in the United States. And let's get something clear. I don't want criminals in the country. That may, Of course not. We don't want people you know, who are going to hurt other people. That's, that's obvious. And so the president said, no bad hombres, fine. Let's keep the bad people out. But I can go down a list of family members who are hardworking, law-abiding, who have been reporting to the immigration services on a regular basis, and now... Some of them are being deported at the meetings, and their their, parent, their their families watch them being taken away. And we're talking about folks that tend to yards, uh, are business people. You know them. And they are hardworking family folks who are now suffering, and their families are being torn apart. It wasn't the way it was portrayed at, during the political campaign, during the elections, where it was just the bad criminals who are being taken away it's actually family members that are being uh, broken up now and we've got to make sure that the dreamers are attended to that the uh, salvadorans under tps there's also haitians that lost tps and then there's a bigger immigration issue that needs to be addressed i guess the one thing i want to add and we'll move on to as well is that today the president actually alluded to if if the Congress can handle the issue of DACA. They are on the way to coming up with comprehensive immigration. And the last time I remember that happening, you know, Bush was talking about it and then 9-11 happened and threw that off course. Um, I know that early in the Obama administration, we thought, oh, we thought that there would be immigration reform as well, but that didn't happen. We wound up with this piecemeal plan that we we have today. So wanted to kind of, to give you an update on that. There are going to be different actions. You need to call your representatives from top to bottom to make sure that they know where you stand on this. But we want the folks from El Salvador. We want the folks who are under the Dreamers as well. And our Haitian brothers and sisters know that we stand with you. We will keep people apprised. But we need everybody to stay tuned at, at every level. And you may ask, hey, why are the writers talking about these issues? Only art can save us. We need everyone to tell the story. And I think when Mixed American Studies was being prohibited in Arizona, yes, it was Chicanos who were suffering the direct brunt, but a lot of people who are not Latino came to the aid of the people of Tucson and folks fighting for that struggle. So we, we see who the obvious target is, but we also know that it's more than just that individual grew. So wanted to touch bases. And I know you're a teacher, so I can imagine that when you go back to school, there's a lot of young kids whose families are covered by these uh, oh, policies. Yeah, definitely. Obviously there, there is, and it's, it's just, it's sad, you know, to, to know that this is going on, but um, we just have to leave it to people who, who are really advocates for our uh, Mexican-American nationalities to come through and to fight for us and to uh, to be our voice, because that's one thing that we need is, is a voice. And you obviously are a person, a voice, oh. who um, is out there and you're just politically savvy and you know what you're talking about and you know how to get the job done. So I think our people are very honored and fortunate to have somebody like you behind us and to back us up and to fight for all these rights that we need. That's very kind of you. And I'm really happy that we can unite to, to educate our youth and, and other yeah. Texans as well. And typically we do a musical break, but you know what? This is the first, the first year of the show. 
Let's get every second that we can in to educate, inspire folks. And I believe we have Lorenzo Cano on the line already. Is that the case? Oh, yes. Yes? Lorenzo, are you on the line? Well, I'm here if you can hear me. Oh, perfect, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, the Meadow Meadow who needs no introduction, who is now retired. Here we are, leaning on him still. The former assistant director of the University of Houston Center for Mesoamerican Studies, a board member, advisory member for Nuestra Palabra, one of the original supporters of the Libertad Fricantes, a champion for Mesoamerican Studies for a very long time, but also a great role model in our community, Lorenzo Gano calling in. Hey, Lorenzo, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for those kind words. Uh, I am retired. Uh, this would be my first uh, week of retirement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've talked to other uh, folks that were part of that Chicago movement who retired, and, and they're still working in, in some way. They're not getting paid, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm happy you did call me, and I'm very happy to, to be here and, and to uh, to have a little discussion with you. No, that's great. So you got Monday. Monday was your retirement day. That was it. Now you're back to work Tuesday. Cause here we, here we, we're like, we gotta call, we gotta call Lorenzo because TPS is out the door. Doc is up in the air. Oh my yeah, goodness. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Tony and uh, all of the things that you just mentioned, uh, the, the TPS, uh, uh, DACA, all of these are issues that we've discussed in, in Mexican American studies or Chicana, Chicano studies, um, uh, uh, in these classes, uh, not only here in, at, at, uh, here at Houston, uh, but also all throughout the country. And I, and I think that uh, you mentioned that uh, you were quite concerned about what was happening throughout the country, and I think that's a reason why we really need uh, Mexican-American studies to be taught in the public schools, all the way from the grammar school and all the way to the high school. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, when we had that conference at U of H uh, that I organized back last spring. Uh, I mentioned that we were 40 years behind uh, in terms of having Mexican American studies in the schools, and uh, you know we're up against some very powerful forces. Um, uh, I think uh, most people listening to this uh, program right now know how powerful the the airwaves are, how powerful the media is, the national media that's controlled by the corporations. Uh, and it's it's very 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 difficult to fight these individuals because uh, uh, they're empowered in all areas uh, of, of uh, our society, you know, the media and politics, the economy, uh, so on and so forth. So it's more important now that we catch up and that we lay the foundation and and uh, organize uh, to get Mexican American studies taught in the public schools. And I'd like to reach out to uh, individuals of Mexican descent who are the principals, uh, who are the teachers, who are on the school board, who are the superintendents. Uh, back when um, I was uh, much younger, uh, we thought that once we got individuals of Mexican descent to be in those positions uh, as principals and area superintendents and superintendents and teachers, that it would just happen naturally. But, of mm. course, uh, we were uh, somewhat naive, apparently, because it just didn't happen automatically. Uh, and so the fact that you're talking about these issues, I think, connects very well to why we need to, to do this in the schools. Wow. And, and I tell you what, you bring up kind of the context of what uh, folks thought of the movement, that what happened when some changes were made. Give us another glimpse of those early days. What were some of the similar issues or some differences and we need you to fire us up <laughs> give us some victories también because i know there were many many in the making even though we have so much more work to do well you know the victories were intergenerational it you know you had individuals um, you know uh, the, the the young people right the young people of that generation who uh, who uh, you know that movement in many ways um uh, can be described as a movement of young people, but it wasn't only the young people. I mean, you did. There were there were older people, uh, there are elders who were involved in it, and there were other organizations that had been around for a long time, like LULAC and GI Forum, and that we all played a role in this thing. But it just so happened that uh, that 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 young population uh, was like a big vitamin to that mm. whole issue, to that whole push of civil rights and human rights. 
and, uh, and we were able to desegregate the schools where people filed lawsuits. Uh, back in Corpus Christi, I was, uh, I believe, the youngest member of the uh, federal judges citizens committee to uh, advise uh, the Corpus Christi Independent School District to to segregate and how to segregate, desegregate wow. the schools, excuse me, uh, because it wasn't very easy. And we all know that as many of the school districts uh, throughout the country, as federal judges came down hard and said, you have to integrate, this is when we began to, to, to see an increase in white flight from the, from the inner city uh, communities. But, um, you know, we see the formation of MALDIF, the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. That was part of that movimiento, uh, uh, new institution, the legal institution that we need more of. And the MALDIF is still in the forefront of creating uh, social change. They were just involved in the Pasadena school suit here in terms of single-member districts in, in uh, Pasadena and in terms of city council. Uh, uh, but we were involved in the farm worker movement, um, I think uh, for for a long time, uh, many of us as young people, or in terms of our community rather, uh, we became more international. We wanted to know more about Mexico. We wanted to know more about our roots, our history, our culture. And many of us traveled to Mexico uh, and tried to meet with uh, uh, our, our counterparts, other younger folks involved in, in teatro. Uh, many of our theater groups here are the Chicano Teatros. Uh, went down and met with different theatro, uh, theatrical groups in Mexico who, whose uh, plays and actos reflected uh, uh, the social conditions and the resistance in Mexico during that time period. And keep in mind, of course, uh, 1968, right, and, and the student movement and the repression of, of students in Mexico. So that was part of that movement. Uh, Members of the uh, Raza Unida Party traveled to Cuba. Though we thought it was important, and I think it's still important, that Mexican-Americans establish our own foreign policy in the sense that it's important that we travel and get to know other world leaders and other activists in other countries. Uh, we see that uh, from some of our local folks, like Brian, you know, Brian Paras and, and others who, who have connected you know, with, the, with the struggles in terms of the environment and global warming. Uh, so that, in many ways, is you know reminds me when I see individuals like him and and others uh, here locally go out and connect uh, at the global level. Uh, and so many of us were involved in that effort as well. Uh, it, it was with the, the writers and the painters. Right now, we see the the I guess you could call it the entire renovation of the uh, mural on Canal Street, rebirth of our nationality. So we saw, we see the proliferation of painters and murals, uh, young uh, Chicanas and Chicanos, you know, who started painting the murals that reflected our history and our culture uh, all over the country, uh, in Houston, in Chicago, Los Angeles, in Colorado. Uh, and and uh, this is just, is just uh, a whole reawakening of, of that effort. But I see that here, too, as well uh, in 2018. Uh, we see the dreamers. We see what I would consider one of the most, um, I think, effective uh, uh, cadre and, and network of young people uh, throughout the country, uh, you know, fighting uh, their right to stay here and fighting their, uh, for the right of their families to stay here. Uh, so there, there's, there's a connection between what we see happening now as well as the kind of things that I experienced back then as a much younger individual. See, this is why... Chicano was a beloved professor. It's, it's like so much, so much important information. Now, and now, give us a little insights into Professor Cano himself, because I think a lot of us just imagine you exist. You were born a professor from you know, from birth. <laughs> Tell us a little about the upbringing in Corpus, especially uh, where you went to high school and your uh, college experience too. And feel free to give out shout outs to your mascots. <laughs> well, you know, I I, I teach a uh, well. I used to teach a course uh, on the the urbanization of the Mexican American community, uh, and one of the things I, I tell the students in that particular, I used to tell the students in that course was that um, that uh, we moved into a neighborhood before I was I guess I was five years old or so that was in the process of transition. Uh, it was a working-class white neighborhood, uh, you could say working-class, middle-class neighborhood, 
a lot of the individuals that lived there worked in the refineries. Uh, you know, most of the people that lived there at that time, uh, bef- the, the years before we moved in, uh, were homeowners. Uh, but then, of course, we began to see the, the, the white flight, and we began to see the, the, popula- the, the elder folks uh, move out. Uh, and then we see, of course, the freeway system that's coming through there as part of the National Highway Act, uh, which um, uh, in reality uh, destroyed a lot of Mexican-American and African-American and working-class neighborhoods because this is where they built that whole interstate highway system. And it was just a lot easier back then to to uh, totally uh, take out the uh, neighborhood and put that freeway through there. But we moved in that neighborhood during that time of transition. But uh, at that particular time, they, there were Anglos still living there, and at the African Americans were also moving in there. So uh, I tell my students I was very happy that that I was able to to grow up in a, a more or less integrated neighborhood, although it was very quickly going to, to change to a predominantly minority neighborhood. Uh, and I say, I say that because I got to uh, understand very quickly that uh, we are all very similar uh, in terms of different racial and ethnic groups. Uh, I got to, to, to know different um, uh, racial and ethnic groups, and that gave me, I think, an understanding uh, that I still use today uh, in, 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 in knowing very, very well that we have more in common than we have differences. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was kind of my early upbringing. But in the high school, in the public schools, and especially in the high schools, uh, many of the young white kids still uh, called us names. They weren't afraid of us yet. But it was in the late 60s where that changed. Uh, and the the taunting, uh, calling us uh, different kinds of names relating to our Mexican ancestry, but in very negative ways. But like those hardcore, we're talking about the hardcore slurs. I, I don't want you to repeat them, but we're talking. Right, right. About- well, there were things that, that white kids just yelled out because they thought they could. And, of course, mm. they could at that time because they were defended by the administration. Mm. Uh, and if they, we complained or there was some kind of pushing or whatever, we're the guys who always got uh, suspended. Right. But that began to change. That began to change. And uh, I... I uh, uh, I'm going to tell you straight up that it was because we fought back. Mm. Uh, people, the, the scuffles occurred and uh, and so on and so forth, and we began to outnumber the Anglos uh, there in the high school at that particular time. Uh, and it was very interesting because uh, even though we we all wanted to get along because we all had that wanted that same school spirit, right, in terms of the football team and the baseball team, but you still had the, uh, those uh, sentiments among many, many uh, young Anglo working class kids at that time. Now, we, we see that now uh, because of, not because of the, I think, the election of Trump, but I think that has brought it more to the surface, right? Mm. Uh, so that still exists today. But we, we, we fought that, and we fought the, the right to speak Spanish uh, in the school. Uh, it used to be if you were walking down the hall and you spoke Spanish, uh, teachers would tell you not to speak it and that kind of stuff. Wow. Well, that changed in the 60s. Uh, we said, no, we were going to continue speaking Spanish, uh, even though some of us didn't speak it very well. <laughs> 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 and and, and um, But a lot of the current uh, current generation, I don't think they realize that, that we, we, we fought. We actually had to get into fiscal scuffles uh, because people would uh, call us names and tell us not to speak, and we would speak, and we'd be sent to the office. And and uh, the, depending on who the principal was at the time or the assistant principal, because uh, that was usually the the individual that you were sent to, um, uh, we we were not going to take it anymore. Uh, and that's why I say that that movement, it was that, that the youth that that uh, was a very, very important element. But, of course, not only the youth, because you know, it was intergenerational, but we had, a, uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, the Chicago movement and the Chicago movement was, was led ultimately by, mostly by young people, but with a lot of help from different generations. Uh, but uh, that was sort of my, my upbringing. Uh, hmm. And... Uh, in my family, we 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 were taught to uh, respect and to uh, treat people fairly, 
but you know, we my father uh, taught us that, but he didn't take uh, any kind of neg- negative remarks. He talked back too. <laughs> 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 so he was a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, so now Lorenzo, of course, everybody is in line trying to get you on their board. Uh, yeah, to, we we want to get you to come speak at uh, one of the Nuestra Palabra events, which is now Nuestra Palabra, the Latino agenda, and not just for folks who are obviously poets and writers, but educators and community leaders such as yourself. That's one way that we've uh, uh, tweaked the um, the whole approach. So what are your plans now? Because I, I, I know you're not going to be able to just sit back and watch things <laughs> go, go with the flow. I have a feeling now you're free. <laughs> you have more free time to get involved with other activities. Any particular goals off the top? Well, I, th- I think for me, the, at least as, as, as I'm thinking of what I might do, uh, and I've mentioned this to several people, and that is to, to try to work uh, to get Mexican-American studies institutionalized in the schools, yes. uh, but Excellent. to be institutionalized in, in the right way. Mm. Though uh, Mexican-American studies is not a, a part a curriculum where we ju- would just want anyone to teach it just so that they can – Someone could say it's being taught. Uh, we need to do teacher training. Uh, we need to go and get students riled up and interested and motivated about this. I think once once they hear about what this is all about, I, I think that they're going to be very interested in it. And uh, we see that in many of the courses that are being taught now in, in some of the high schools uh, here in the area. And uh, so I, I think that is something that I, w- I would like to concentrate uh, on on uh, helping out in. Uh, apart from that, I think that uh, it's going to be important to really fight back in terms of the uh, Republican, uh, really the Republican backlash against who we are and our right to be here. And, of course, you mentioned the Dreamers and, and, and our Central American brothers and sisters in terms of TPS. I don't know exactly what role uh, I'll play, but I certainly will play a supportive role in, in those efforts. Um, I think that uh, perhaps we should call for uh, uh, a Mexican-American Studies Conference for students. Uh, you know, I, when I mentioned I organized the conference there with, with the help of other folks there at U of H last spring, uh, we, the superintendent, uh, Caranza here at HISD spoke. Uh, some of the researchers came that you've mentioned in the program indicating how much better students uh, have done in the high schools that have taken courses in ethnic studies and Mexican American studies. I think we need to reach out directly to the students and so we need to get the students, uh, also to reach out to their fellow classmates as well. Um, back in the 60s and 70s, we had student conferences and where we called for the high school students and the college students to, to, to come and to meet and to learn more about our community. And I can see something like that happening here uh, in terms of having a conference uh, for that will focus on Mexican-American studies where we can have films and we can have art uh, we can have discussions. Uh, we we can have uh, uh, different types of things uh, so that students uh, in the area and all school districts in the area can come see what we're talking about when we're talking about Mexican-American studies. Yeah, I think it's time to do something like that, and I'd like to see who else might be interested in doing that beyond, let's say, uh, you guys in Nuestra Palabra and myself. And I'd like to see what other individuals uh, perhaps here in the program uh, might be interested in putting something together like that. Um, it's important that we reach out directly to the young people and that the young people themselves take a leadership role uh, in this effort. Um, it, it, only through their effort ultimately are we going to see this become a reality. And, and once it becomes a reality, it's going to be up to them to make sure that it stays uh, um, on the right track. He may be retired, but it doesn't sound like he's going to stop working. Hey, Lorenzo, thank you for changing the world, and we can't wait to collaborate with you and celebrate all these new initiatives. Gracias, Lorenzo.
Thank you very much. Uh-huh. You're experiencing Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having to say, yes, it's lit radio. We're going to take a short musical break, and we're going to keep up with this theme of heroes, leaders, inspiring our youth as we come back and talk to author Yvette Benavides Garcia to talk about the book that she wrote about her father, Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. We'll be right back. Es la cumbia la que manda en mi país, es el ritmo sabrosón del Salvador, es el ritmo sabrosón del Salvador, es la cumbia la que manda en mi país, es la cumbia la que manda en mi país, es el ritmo sabrosón del Salvador, es el ritmo sabrosón del Salvador. having their say on the air and you are back we're actually gonna promo our next week's show as well i'll be attending tonight on the production of the color purple i love the book of course by alice walker i i didn't i wasn't ready to watch the film i'm like you know books are always better than film the film was powerful i have to get ready to see the film tonight and next week we're going to have Jay Doherty, one of the performers from the play on the show. On top of that, next Tuesday, you should tune in every week anyway. <laughs> but next Tuesday, we're also going to interview Ted Anton, one of my professors, who was my mentor as an undergraduate. He actually handed me the first book written by a Latina that I ever read. It was Down These Mean Streets by Pity Thomas. And that moment 
played a big role in making me understand my role in the literary world. So next week, another great show. And right now, I'm hoping we're changing your lives and boggling your imagination right now. I want to welcome Yvette Benavides to the radio show. Now, uh, she was born in Fort Riley, Kansas. She's a military brat her own words, <laughs> and a proud supporter of our military. Although she wasn't born in Texans, she's acclimated well. This means she loves her sweet tea. She married her high school sweetheart, Ren, and they have two children, Ryan and Morgan. She graduated from the University of Texas at Austin. Hook em horns. Okay, I'm reading the bio. I don't... <laughs> I know the Aggie. Put a listeners. little bit more into this. Come <laughs> the, the Aggie folks are going to be calling us angry. No. no, that's okay because I married an Aggie. Oh, my goodness. Class of 1993. Woot. See? Yeah, I'm, so I'm a house divided. Howdy. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> and their parents to the dog, Zoe, a.k.a. Jojo, and five chickens, Napoleon, Pedro, Kip, La Fandujua, and, and La Fonda. And she's always loved writing, but she didn't find her inner writing until she took a New Jersey writing course. It was at that seminar that she was forced to write an expository writing piece. She wrote an article about her dad's struggles with diabetes called Fight My Dad's Killer. To her surprise, it was accepted and featured in the November 2003 issue of Hispanic Magazine. That's her first writing piece. Now we have her latest writing piece, which is the book that is her legacy. It's titled Tango Mike Mike. It is the story of Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, an American hero. Yvette, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm super excited that um, I'm a writer and a published author because as um, kind of the theme of what's going on is that um, I, I, I believe, um, I'm a strong uh, believer in that we don't have a lot of Hispanics, Mexican-Americans who we can look up to. Um, and we do have those people, but, um, you know, our, our kids are skewed in the wrong direction of, of what a hero is or, or who our role models are. And so, um, you know, I want to get out there that we can have people, Latinos, Latinas, who can be writers and who are educators and who are authors and publishers and motivational speakers and, and things like that. And so I'm proud to say, uh, because I have the, the heritage of Yaqui Indian and um, Hispanic Mexican American that and Irish that, um, you know, people can look up to me or my dad and we can be role models for them. And my dad obviously is a, a legend. He's an American icon. But I wrote the book because I wanted those kids out there of any color, of any nationality to have somebody that they could look up to and, and be inspired by. And, you know, my dad, he never looked at the color of anybody's skin. And mm. he was a big proponent of that. And I try to teach my kids that as well, that the only colors that we really should be worried about are the colors of red white and blue. Mm. Now, now, what got you into teaching and how long have you been a teacher? Um, I've been a teacher for 15 years um, and I got into teaching um, 15 years ago when I was pregnant with my first son, uh, Ryan. And, you know, I always ha I've always had that love to um, inspire kids and to, to teach them and to, to see that light bulb go off in them. And so that was my motivation for teaching. And um, I'm still at it. I teach reading and writing and um, I love it. And I especially like the writing portion of it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm out there to say, publicly say I'm not a very good reader. <laughs> and uh, even though I wrote a book, um, um, but I'm getting um, into the habit of reading more because I do know that with a reading comes good writers. And so um, I'd like to be a, a role model for that. But um, yeah, I, I never really liked to read when I was growing up. Now, my sister Denise loves to read and she's a big reader and I hope to one day be a, a good reader like that. But I liked more of being creative uh, with my writing and I've always um, written, you know, I used to keep journals and even now I keep journals for my kids so that they can one day um, read. But I just love to write. Um, so that's how I kind of got started. Which is great because I think, as we said earlier, uh, 
we're blessed because your father is one of those figures who is in the educational system in different books. Right. So some people may say, well, I, I think I've heard the story. Um, I, I think it's out there. Mm-hmm. What I want to get across to them is that you are in the educational system. You are an educator. You know what children need to to learn, how they need to learn it. Right. And you saw something a, a space that needed to be filled. I did, yeah, because, you know, being an educator, uh, every time, you know, um, November would come around for Veterans Day or, or Memorial Day then would come around, you know, everybody would be asking me, oh, Miss Garcia, is there a book written about your dad? And, you know, there are books written about my dad, but they're more of the adult content you know, version. And so I never really felt comfortable referring those adult books because they have adult language, you know, um, some bad words in it. And so I would always have to Google my dad and we'd look at YouTube videos and things like that. And, and I really felt like there was a need for these young kids to look at somebody like my dad who could inspire them and who was a real hero because to them, and there's nothing against, um, you know, these, uh, NFL players or NBA players out there, but that's who they were looking up to as a hero. But if you look at the true definition of what a hero is, it's somebody who has gone above and beyond and risked their lives. And so these, you know, NFL players and NBA players and hockey players and all that, they're more of a role model for those kids, not heroes. And so I wanted to get the message out that this is a true American hero. And for those people of nationalities, you know, he is a Mexican-American Yaki hero. So that is something that they can be proud of, you know, their heritage, um, their nationality. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud that uh, we have this book out there now and it's available on Amazon. Um, you can get it on Amazon uh, or you can get it through me. You can, um, I'm on PayPal, you know, we can leave that link later um, with you, but um, I'm just really proud of it. You know, that now our kids have somebody that they can look up to. Now the the other thing too, especially because of what Musta Palabra does, mm-hmm. I, some people may be listening and think, well, of course she had to write the book. What one thing I think about our group, because we have been in this field so long and we're writers, we understand that sometimes we don't think we're the ones to write the book. People don't know that it's hard to write a book too. Right. It takes time, energy, get the voice down. And I've had this in the back of my head for years. You know, when I first wrote um, my uh, piece that got published, um, you know, 15 years ago um, with Hispanic Magazine, it was published in 2003. But when I wrote that, I always thought, you know, I'm going to write some books about my dad and how he can influence people because I knew that my kids were never going to have an opportunity to meet him. And so I did write about, I have about five children's books out there and they're all based off of my family and what my kids might say and what my dad, how he would have answered back. Wow. And so they're kind of sitting out there and they're waiting to be published, but it it is, I kind of sat on these for so long because I never believed that I could do it. Never thought that I could have the the backing for it and the motivation. You know, I'm a full-time teacher and a wife and a mother and just with everything that's going on in life. That is about one hour. Yeah, Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, I just never put forth the effort. And then finally, when my kids started asking me, I was like, you know, I really need to do this, not only for me and for my children, but for my kids who Mm. are my children as well. And so um, finally, I got up enough, enough nerve and I said, you know, quit trying to sabotage all the reasons why you shouldn't do this. Quit coming up with reasons why you shouldn't do this. Just bite the bullet and do it. You know, and I prayed about it and God gave me strength, which he always does. And my dad, believe it or not, uh, I feel like I can communicate with him on a on a weird level. But he always gives me some type of message to help me to get through anything that I'm going through. And I just, you know, I had to be a role model for my own kids, my own personal kids. Ryan and and Morgan were always Mm. asking me, Mom. 
when are you going to publish your book? Mom, when are you going to publish your book? And it was a hard feat, but I did a lot of research and I spent about six months researching it, um, what it takes to self-publish because I wanted to self-publish. That's another thing. I did self-publish this book. Um, I did not go through the traditional publishing route because my dad had gone through the traditional publishing route. And although it, it's, it's great and good and everything, but I wanted to be con in control. And so, um, I just researched it and it took about a good year for me to finally, um, let it come to fruition, but I'm proud to say that I finally did it. So anybody out there, my advice to you is just do it. Just finish whatever you've started writing. Just finish and get it published. And I really do appreciate you being so honest about those yeah, struggles because yeah. I think it's true for all writers, but we can't make light of the fact that especially for Latino writers, right. we don't. Again, I read my first book by a Latino, and, and he was a Boricua. It was a Perry, Th a Perry Thomas, a Puerto Rican writer, as a junior in college. Mm. In yeah. college. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So without those literary predecessors, we don't have a template. I didn't think we could write about our background. So I so uh, thank you for sharing that because I want to add, yeah. not just is it hard to be a writer, right. but in our community, we're not exposed to that as well. Oh, and yeah. then... It is a bit. It is a risk at the very least oh, of time and energy. At the very least, it, yeah, it's the, a risk. It's a risk, and um, you just have to market the heck out of your book. And I knew that I'd have. I had a market because of my dad's following. So I was kind of banking on that. And they, um, I get emails all the time. My, you know, my brothers and sisters do too. But we're always, you know. People are always communicating with us about my dad. So I knew that I had to do this not only for me, but for them. You That's know? great. So, yeah, I mean, but you have to be smart about it. And you, you can't just let it all just, oh, you know, fall into place. You have to really work at it. And that's one thing that I did do. I, I researched it. I stayed up many, many hours late, late at night. I forewent a lot of going outings with my family. You know, couldn't do this, couldn't do that because I had to work. And then um, I just eventually just... It. And we're here to celebrate it. Yeah, we have about thank you. five minutes left. I'd love if you could share yeah. some experts with our with our listeners. Yes. Is this your first radio interview by any chance? No, I've uh, done I've what, done others. What kind of exclusive this is do we have? The first my year for, and, and for the new year. The first for the new year. First yes. New year. So, um, yes. First in Houston. Second. Oh, I'll yeah. take first for the new year. <laughs> Your first 2018 Second. interview. <laughs> yeah, the Catholic News Radio got me first. Gotcha. So I was with them not too long ago. But, um, yes, so let's see. Where do I want to start? It is... Um, a really good book for all of you who are looking to um, gift your children with something. It's it's a quick read. I wrote it for those kids out there. Like I said, um, you know, being a teacher, I know that there are kids who struggle with reading mm. and who cannot just pick up a you know fifth grade, sixth grade level book. Um, so this um, ha is really inspiring for any type of reader. So. Um, Go out and buy it, and I hope you enjoy this. The Green Berets are the elite of the elite, as Roy always said. The qualifications, training, and endurance are rigorous. Everything a Green Beret goes through in order to be the best of the best is tough, rugged, and draining. Not only is it physically challenging, but it is mentally exhausting as well. Roy secured the distinction of being a Green Beret because because he put his mind to it. Who would have ever thought that this son of a sharecropper and a grade school dropout would become part of such an elite group? If you really stop to think about it, how could this man who dropped out of school in the eighth grade study, train, and qualify for this group? How could someone qualify for the Green Berets who had just been told just a year previous that he'd never even walk again? that he'd be paralyzed from the waist down. How could someone who lived his life in physical pain endure the hardcore labor-intensive training of the Special Forces? His faith, determination, and positive attitude played an important role in him achieving his dream. 
On May 2, 1968, Roy, or Tango Mike Mike, was in Vietnam for a second time. He was in the jungles of Cambodia attending a church service when he overheard someone on a nearby radio calling an airstrike, saying, Get us out of here! When Tango Mike Mike heard this call for help, without thinking twice, he quickly grabbed his bowie knife and a medic's bag. He made the sign of the cross and kissed his St. Michael medallion. St. Michael is the patron saint of paratroopers. Now that he was a Green Beret, Roy wore this medallion too. Roy's devotion to his religion is what got him through his battles in life. He never wavered in his faith. Without hesitation, Roy voluntarily boarded a waiting helicopter. Roy went on this mission because he wanted to, not because he had to or because he was ordered to go. He wanted to go and save his buddies' lives. Once the helicopter landed in the jungles of Vietnam, Roy jumped out and made it about a hundred yards before he was hit by enemy fire. The blast from the gunfire knocked him back, but he got up. He made his way to the team of U.S. soldiers who'd been pinned down by enemy fire and gave them medical care. He also formed a defense and rescue area and called in airstrikes. His mission was to save his buddies and bring back classified documents that one of his comrades had. Despite being hit several times by gunshots, grenades, and shrapnel, Tango Mike Mike spent six hours in the jungle of Cambodia that day fighting the enemy soldiers. Roy refused to abandon his efforts and would not leave until every man was out of harm's way. Ultimately, he saved the lives of eight men. On board the helicopter were also several enemy soldiers. Roy later said, I didn't want to leave anybody behind. Roy had been clubbed, stabbed, bayoneted, shot, and left for dead. His medical reports showed that he had sustained more than 57 wounds to his head, face, neck, hands, arms, legs, back, and buttocks. He was injured so badly that when he finally lifted off the helicopter, he was holding his intestines in his hands. Thank you very much. That is Yvette Benavides-Garcia reading an excerpt from her new book, Tango Mike Mike, the story of her father, Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. It was amazing. Thank and you. I want to thank the whole crew for another great show. We'll be back next week, and we look forward to seeing you on social media. This is Tony Diaz, Libre Traficante. Libre Traficante, Alexis de Texas. Libre Traficante, J.A. And this is Libre Traficante, Malu. Have a good one. like to get involved with producing radio for KPFT, consider coming out for the first Saturday Skillshare, 10 a.m. the first Saturday of the month. We'll take two hours to teach anyone who attends how to mix radio on a soundboard and basic editing using KPFT's recording studio. If you've got something to teach, get in touch to offer to share your skills as well. You can email me at patrick at kpft.org or just drop in on the first Saturday of the month at 10 a.m. See y'all there. Don and Dwayne Freeman of KPFT's Free Minstrel Show, along with KPFT's Generation Radio, send many thanks to all who attended comedy fundraiser benefiting KPFT at Station Theater. From vintage vinyls to versatile comedic vignettes, the evening had it all and was one for the ages. Many thanks as well to Buffalo Bayou Brewing Company for the libations. Feeling a sense of FOMO? Not to worry. We've got the details on when you can see them in action next. Comedy Fundraiser Benefiting KPFT is a monthly comedy and music showcase on the second Saturday of each month at Station Theater, 1230 Houston Avenue. Details at stationtheater.com. KPFT, Houston. Houston.